All right, how's everybody doing today? Good, good to see you guys. Beautiful weather today. I was really struck by that last song the praise band sang. I never heard that song before, so thank you to Bob or whoever discovered that song. It was beautiful, and I look forward to singing it more in the future. My name is Brent Puget. I think I know most of you guys. I'm the senior pastor here at Byfield Parish, and it is awesome to be gathered here with you again today. For those of you that haven't been here very much this summer, we've been going through a series, the goal of which has been to develop a better theology of mankind, a better understanding of what Scripture has to say about who we are as people. The Bible has some very important things to say in this regard. God created us as unified beings, body, soul, and spirit in His image. The potential we had was desecrated by sin. Despite this, we still bear God's imprint, as do all the people we come into contact with every day. We have a responsibility to love one another for this reason. God created us with a desire to build a kingdom, and we still have that desire, although we often use it to build kingdoms of our own making instead of its original intent, which was to build a kingdom of God. These worldly kingdoms of man inevitably as modern people, we need to be especially cautious of the multiplier effect technology has on us due to sin. Through Scripture, God has communicated a lot of truths about humanity. This week and next, we are still going to be focused on developing the theology of of man. To do so, we are going to look more explicitly at how God responds to us in our fallen state as His image bearers. We are not what God made us to be. He could abandon us, but He doesn't. He could destroy us, but He won't. Today, we are again returning to the book of Genesis to some incredibly well-known verses. There, we will see what God's response to the situation humanity finds itself in means for us today. So if you will turn there with me now to Genesis chapter 9, we will be reading verses 8 through 17. If you brought your Bible with you, that is great. If not, the English Standard Version of today's text can be found inside of your bulletin. That's Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, 
and every beast of the earth with you. As many as come out of the ark is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow and the clouds, I will speak and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. In the aftermath of the flood, this act of great judgment, God promises to withhold his world-destroying power in the future. This promise is not based on optimism that humanity has learned its lesson and will never act again in the way it acted prior to the flood. Neither does God withhold his wrath because he lacks the power or the right to execute judgment. God's promise to humanity is a product of his unchanging character. He establishes a covenant with Noah and all who follow after him out of love. God commits himself to mankind in spite of his awareness of what people are like. Human hope is rooted in the covenants God initiates. Through them, mercy is offered. All who receive God's unmerited mercy should likewise be merciful to others. The covenant God makes with man determines the relationship we have with God. Our experience of the covenantal grace inherent in that relationship will determine how we relate to others. God has every right to destroy all mankind anytime it pleased him. In the story of the flood which happened just prior to these verses, God almost completely destroyed the world. He had his reasons for doing so. Genesis 6, 11 and 12 let us know what those reasons were. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way 
on the earth, depravity had overtaken the world. Creation was corrupted by sin. The word used three times in these two verses for corruption is the Hebrew word shahit. The extent of the corruption is communicated through the repetition of the word. The earth is completely spoiled. People have become the source of rancidness in God's good world, a revolting stench. Getting rid of corrupted things is a reflexive response. Monday is garbage day where I live. And every Monday when I set up my trash can, I'm hopeful that when I get home, it will be gone. Not the garbage can, but the stuff in the garbage can. Right? And when I get home and I see that my trash has been taken away, I feel a sense of relief because the source of corruption has been taken away from my life. I don't want to be exposed to things that are rotten and degrading. God is significantly more holy, more pure than I am. There is no injustice in God's destruction of corrupted things. Actually, his actions are completely valid. While God has plenty of reason for sending the flood of judgment, he doesn't even need a reason to be done with humanity. He doesn't owe us anything. We are created beings. Our life is a result of God's initiative. He can do with us whatever he pleases. My kids enjoy spending time creating these massive Lego fortresses and ships, which they then destroy by dropping battery bombs on them. The things they create are really impressive, but however impressive those things are, my kids can do with them whatever they see fit. Whoever makes something can do with it whatever they choose. God is our creator. There is nothing outside of himself that limits what he can do with people. Humanity has no claims on God. This is actually a bit hard for us to swallow. We are used to thinking of ourselves as valuable. In recent decades, school children have been taught that they should have self-esteem. People have really bought into the notion that every person is inherently valuable. The problem with this idea is that human value isn't inherent to us. It is derivative from God. Humans must treat other humans as having value because God gives each person value. God's hands are not tied. He could do whatever he wanted to with us. The way God ends up acting towards humanity is a result of his unchanging character. He is not capricious. Malachi 3, 6 
states this truth clearly and beautifully. It says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. If God were different, he would have wiped out humanity a long time ago. Our continued existence is a direct result of who God is. Not only could God have wiped humanity off the map if that were in line with his character, he has good reason to do so because of how corrupted people are by sin. God consistently responds to humanity's pitiful state with loving kindness. In the verses we read today, God's character leads him to establish a covenant between himself and humanity. A covenant is a binding relationship between two parties. At the time Genesis was written, it was the most sacred relationship possible. It was not something to take lightly. Normally, covenants took place between two kings or between a ruler and his subjects. They were the basis of societal order. Being a covenant breaker, that was the worst possible thing a person could be. When someone did break a covenant, the consequences were severe. The, in the individual who did so expected to be annihilated completely. God is initiating a covenant with Noah, his descendants, and even the animals. The rainbow in the sky is God signing his name to that covenant agreement. By doing so, God is limiting his freedom to act. He is promising to not destroy all flesh. This may not seem like a big deal to us, but it certainly is. God is choosing to give up power to act in a way that would have been completely legitimate for him. The odd thing about the covenant God makes with Noah, and really all of the covenants throughout Scripture, is that it is completely one-sided. God is the one doing everything. Normally, when an all-powerful king made a covenant with those that were completely in his power, the purpose of it was to tell his subjects what they were to do. The king says, you will pay taxes, you will serve in the army, and you will pledge allegiance to me, or you will die. That's not what God says in these verses. Again and again, he lets us know what he will do. He is committing himself to humanity. There's a show on Netflix called Married at First Sight. The premise of this show is that three experts comb through a list of applicants to determine who should marry whom. The most recent season took place in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2019. 
something like 29,000 people apply. Once the experts select four couples they believe to be well suited to one another, these men and women get married. They do so never having seen or spoken with one another. The first time they have any interaction occurs when they stand together at the altar. When the pastor pronounces the couple married, the woman always has this surprise reaction to learning what her new last name is. We can all agree that this is completely and totally insane. The covenant, entering the covenant of marriage with someone you don't even know? God's entry into covenantal relationship with humanity is the complete opposite of what happens on the TV show Married at First Sight. He knows everything about the people he is making a covenant with. Not just their past and their present, but also their future. Talk about terrifying. If you think this sounds like a better option, you are sadly mistaken. God knows what people are like. He knows that we were created good in His image. He also knows that people have no capacity to follow through on that good because of sin. Throughout Scripture, the people that God is in covenant with are repeatedly described as an unfaithful spouse. God knows the people He covenants with will be unfaithful to Him. God binds Himself in covenant knowing He is tying Himself to sinful humanity. From our perspective, God's willingness to enter into a covenant relationship with people that will be adulterous is crazy. The reason it is not is that the dynamics of the covenant between God and humanity are different than the dynamics between a husband and a wife in marriage. For a man and a woman to be married, both partners have to make it work. No person can make a marriage succeed on their own. God's covenants are not dependent on us. If they were, they would surely fail. God is the absolute driving force in the covenants He makes with people. Humanity's continued existence is based on God's initiative, on His covenantal mercy. We cannot earn the mercy we need to sustain our own lives. Acknowledging this fact is essential to a true Christian theology. A lot of what, have I, a lot of what I have preached on over the course of this summer is pretty easy to swallow for the average listener, even for non-believers. Nobody has a problem with 
people being made in the image of God. Loving fellow human beings sounds like a nice thing to do. Most people would accept that sin is in the world tainting human efforts, even if they use a different word. It is harder to come to terms with the fact that your personal sin forfeits your right to exist. Resistance to this fact is common. Many deny it. Until we come to terms with the fact that our very existence in this world is dependent on the unearned mercy of God. We cannot accept that saving mercy he freely gives, which makes eternal existence possible. Ephesians 2.8.9 say it clearly, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is nothing any person can do to earn the right to exist before God in this world and the world to come. We are totally dependent on God. This is not bad news. God's desire is to show mercy. Any who have placed their faith in God's covenant promises have a secure hope. God's covenantal commitment to humanity will not waver. I mean, seriously, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If we have any handle on the mercy we have been shown by God, we will show mercy towards others. I'm gonna, this is me taking off the gloves real quick. I am sick. This is me personally talking right now. I am sick of people that claim to be Christians, that claim to be mature believers, saying, I can't forgive that. What is that? Seriously. You know, now, now I'm really going off. The problem in the United States is not all these things in the world. It's not. The problem in the United States is the church is filled with people that claim to believe, be believers who refuse to forgive even other Christians. On what basis? Seriously, somebody stand up and give me a word that validates that position from a gospel perspective. The people you come into contact with every day have been horribly affected by sin, just like you have. We should in no way be surprised that they act in hurtful ways. People may be able to manage their sin in more socially acceptable ways sometimes. We like the people that know how to socially 
acceptably manage their sin. But no person can overcome it on their own. If you want to know how mature a person is in their faith, the best indication is how they respond to other people. Our own need of God's mercy just to exist should make us merciful towards others. We all deserve death, but God gives life. The most exceptional form Christian mercy can take is when we are merciful towards our enemies. From my natural perspective, my enemies don't deserve mercy. They deserve death. Or maybe not death, but it should at least be made clear to them that they have no right to exist in my presence. The spiritual perspective all who have experienced God's mercy should have is what Jesus exhibited most fully as God incarnate. He offered life to you and I while we were enemies. If we experience that mercy of Christ, how can we act as if we shouldn't show the same mercy towards others? People do not deserve to exist in God's presence. This is a bit of a problem because outside of God's presence, there is no existence. We cannot simply move towns or go to the next state over. Through sin, humanity has forfeited any right we had to exist before God. However, God doesn't destroy life. He does the opposite. He commits himself to maintaining and sustaining life. He enters into a binding covenant with man knowing that people will at all times reject the life he offers the burden of the covenant falls squarely on god he promises mercy in place of the wrath we deserve jesus is the ultimate manifestation of god's life-giving mercy to mankind any who have experienced god's mercy should show mercy to others God gives us what we do not deserve in spite of our unfaithfulness. He withholds wrath and judgment, offering life and peace in his place. Any who have their dependency on God's generosity should show the same generosity towards others. In the same way we are blessed, we should bless those we come into contact with. Let's pray. Dear Lord, showing mercy is a constant battle. The temptation for us is to think that we deserve to be in your presence, that we have earned your love, which then creates an expectation that others should earn our love, that others should earn our mercy, Lord. And that is a false gospel. 
It is a lie. It is not true Christian faith. But it is something that we are continually tempted to believe, Lord. So I pray that you would demolish that lie in our hearts and in our minds, Lord. I pray for those here today, for for all of us, that we would be able to show love and mercy toward the people you have placed in our lives, especially those that we consider our enemies, Lord. I pray that you would break the strongholds that exist in any heart. Whatever sort of logic is applied to say, no, in this case, it is okay that I hate my brother or my sister or that I despise the person that I don't even know, Lord. I pray that you would demolish that logic that runs completely contrary to your gospel. I ask that you would be with us and that we would truly understand what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us and the Holy Spirit would operate in our lives. And I ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.